0: Hello, you're listening to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. I'm Colin Wood, Managing Editor of State Scoop. This is our innovation episode, and while not all of the content is pandemic related, much of the focus here is on what innovation can do during a time like this and how leaders should be thinking about innovation during the COVID 19 pandemic. Our guests on this episode are Sean Riley, Chief Information Officer of North Dakota, and Mike Hussey, CIO of Utah. I asked these two gentlemen to be guests on this episode because whenever I hear of something new and interesting or something being done for the first time in state IT, there's a better than average chance it's coming out of one of these two states. We start off with Sean who shares his definition of innovation and some of his thoughts on the importance of an innovative mindset He explains some of the work done prior to the pandemic that he said has been essential as his office has attempted to assist a quarter of a million people across the state continue to either work or study at home. We cover some of North Dakota's programs, including its beyond-line-of-sight drone research, its growing sensor network, a burgeoning data sharing platform, and of course, contact tracing efforts. Our second interview with Mike Hussey is structured a little differently. We spend a lot more time reviewing some of the major projects in Utah, which include work that relates to the pandemic, such as an initiative to limit potential exposure to the virus during required in-person visits to the DMV, some of Utah's remote work efforts, contact tracing, intelligence dashboards, chatbots, digital signatures, and a failed geofencing project. Mike was kind enough to explain how it went wrong and why he thinks it's important for states to expose themselves to the possibility of minor failures of that kind. As always, thank you for listening. And now on to our first interview. All right. So I'm here with Sean Riley. First of all, Sean, how how do you define innovation?
1: Well, thanks, Colin. I think uh, innovation is something that brings up a lot of different topics in people's minds. They they constantly think of the uh, the. The thing that is right on the edge of possible, and they like to think of things the uh, you know the the SpaceX SpaceX rocket, and they like to think of the uh, the technology that is uh, just around the corner in the latest sci-fi show. But the reality is, is innovation can be much more mundane in some cases. But it really boils down to how are we taking our environment, and how are we doing things that are going to be significantly different. And be able to do it in a way that really hasn't been done before. So yeah, just uh, think of your, your normal way that you would uh, get your work done in the day. And all of a sudden it hits you, God, it'd be so much faster and easier if I did it another way. That in itself can be a very simple innovation. But it's, uh, it comes in all sizes, but it's really about doing your work differently and faster, easier, more effectively than you were doing it before.
0: Right. Yeah, I like that. That's a good, simple definition. I was just talking to Ed Toner, CIO of Nebraska yesterday, and uh, he he defined innovation as just getting rid of paper. Which uh, (laughs) is kind of in line with what you were saying.
1: I I like that one, right? Um, I mean, innovation can be huge and innovation doesn't have to be huge. It all really comes down to is where are you making improvements? And sometimes those improvements are very incremental, and those are small innovations. And sometimes you can make transformational innovation that really completely changes how you do work. But innovation in itself is just continuous improvement over and
0: over and over. Right. So is innovation, so like for a long time there was discussions about whether there should be a chief innovation officer or whether that's counterproductive, because then that kind of segments off innovation into its own little part of the organization. And really, you should be including it in everything you do and so forth. So uh, how do you how do you fit innovation into your overall IT uh, strategic plan? And, and how do you yeah, how does I how does innovation fit into into your whole framework?
1: Yeah. so. So innovation for us has a defined team, and in our case, it's under our reinvention organization. So our reinvention organization is comprehensive things like business process improvements, but it's also thinking very differently about service delivery. So as a, for example, uh, DOT is working through a process with our reinvention organization how might we be able to make sure that no citizen ever stands in line again for any DOT service? And that would be an innovation aspect. Now for us, we have this component of a reinvention office that's one of our divisions within our IT organization, but we also encourage innovation at every level. And you encourage that through multiple different ways. You encourage business process improvement, you encourage the the entire scope of a growth mindset thinking that all things are possible. We have to just remember what our, our goals are as our organization. Our primary goals are deploy a world-class government experience, secure all government held in North Dakota, and deliver the most efficient government services in America. And when you think of those three goals, it really helps to define what people need to innovate and how they need to innovate. So what happens at the large scale, at a dedicated team scale from a reinvention office, but it also can happen at the, the staff level at any level of the organization and across our organization.
0: Right. Um, all right, so I wanted to get into some of the uh, projects that you've been working on that you would consider more innovative or forward-thinking in recent weeks or months. Uh, what do you got?
1: Yeah, so over this last couple of years, we've had some amazing projects, and one of which is kind of outside of your normal IT scope, but would be we we see all education as being essential to the future, and we see the education of our kids in the way that we must have a comprehensive understanding of technology. So as an IT organization, we helped the state of North Dakota be able to move forward with comprehensive computer science standards, comprehensive cyber science standards, integration of those standards, and then the deployment of those standards to every single school district in the state. Now, that in itself is a great leap in education, but it's also really an innovation nationally, as there's no other state at this point that has integrated computer science and cyber science in every single school across the state, kindergarten through PhD. So that would be one aspect. And then additionally to that, we look at innovation within this space of future technologies, and where can we be most effective with the citizen's dollar? Where can we be most effective with that government experience? And in those senses, we've brought forth projects like uh, an initiative to be able to enable sensors across the entire state, a sensor platform that will have, uh, at one point in the future, over a billion sensors in it, and a billion sensors in a state that barely has a million people. You know, a thousand to one. So sensors for ag, sensors for, for water management, for environmental management, for the roadways. Uh, we already have sensors deployed now in uh, many of our highways where we've got acoustic fiber laid in the, in the road. So it helps us to understand when it's raining, when it's snowing, how many cars are really there in real time, uh, what kind of vehicles they are, et cetera, those type of things, all in real time, making a much more effective use of our state resources. Then additionally to that, we're really looking at the future. And as we're thinking about the future, we've got things like uh, here in the state of North Dakota, the Grand Sky Project. And the Grand Sky Project is a statewide radar system for out-of-line-of-sight drones and will be the first state with a comprehensive radar system to be able to allow drones to be able to interconnect out-of-line-of-sight, which today most people don't realize. They think drones are all very, very autonomous, but the reality is, is today you Pretty much when you use your drone, you have to have a human able to stare at it uh, to to be able to see it. Uh, There's actually an entire company out there uh, whose whole job is, is to get into chase planes and to follow drones around and watch the drone as they fly around. And our new radar system will allow us to be able to have a comprehensively new model of how drones get used across the United States. With that also comes our Grand Farm Initiative. The Grand Farm Initiative, then, is a fully autonomous farm that is completely human-free. So a robotic farm that is being built here in eastern North Dakota uh, for the purposes of being able to get into that 21st century agriculture, into precision agriculture, and be able to really augment all of those different opportunities out there for, uh, for people to be able to use robotics and autonomous technology on the ground. We've also done a lot of innovation here in the world of COVID. So now that we've got the coronavirus and has really changed how everybody's done work, um, everything from standing up a new contact tracing application in our old way of doing this would have taken us a year, year and a half to do a deployment. Uh, We built this thing in eight days and deployed it across the state. Uh, We've changed how we are thinking about systems, how we're trying to be frictionless with government So now we're deploying new technologies to comprehensively, as Ed Toner said, remove paper, make it that any citizen can get any service from any point within government at any time. And we're deploying those technologies as fast as we can move them across the entire environment. There's a whole bunch of other things I could go into, but I'll stop there and let you get back to the questions.
0: All right, great. Yeah. Um, Do you have any idea when the Beyond Line of Sight drone system is going to be completed? Is there a set time or a deadline on that?
1: Yeah. So we have the first 1200 square miles are already active, already running. Uh, The rest of the state is in progress of working through with the FAA. Uh, So we're working through with our federal partners to make sure that we're deploying the right system. So we'll go go long term into uh, the national recognition for drone safety. Uh, so with that, I would say, uh, before COVID, I would have quoted you a timeline right now after COVID, uh, I think we're going to have to go back and re-baseline ourselves because we, we pulled everybody off of every project to go and fight the coronavirus.
0: Right. And I know there's a handful of States that are working on this, uh, but you guys are going to get there first, huh? Absolutely. All right, cool. Um, Okay, so to go back to the contact tracing app, uh, we're kind of jumping around a little bit here, but we'll, we'll get back to innovation in a, uh, on a higher level in a moment. Um, one of the issues that's come up repeatedly is, uh, at least in my mind, is the issue of interoperability. Uh, is this something right. that you're concerned about? And do you have any answers, or if not answers, at least insights into how that problem might be solved?
1: Yeah, so we, we realize that our systems, we are in an enterprise that has systems that are cutting edge today technology that is very, very cool. We are also in a system that at the very same time has technology that's older than I am and stuff that was brought in in the early 1970s. And we're still using some of that old stuff. Um, while at the same time we have this really cool stuff on the new end. And the reality is is that most of today's modern technology wasn't even a concept or a dream at the point in which probably 50% of all government tech has been deployed. So when we think of that, interoperability is a much more complex question than it is for many enterprises. What we have to be able to think about is how do we build a data platform that allows us to be able to move information from system to system, regardless of whether it's sitting on an old COBOL mainframe or whether it's sitting in something that's a brand new web-enabled technology. And with that, what we've built is, uh, we've built a data platform that we call the unified data platform that gives us accessibility from different data systems and we can move data inbound from all of these different systems. Now that that platform is still very much uh, designing, it is still very much uh, really exploding out. And as we build it out here, it'll become really a an overall modern data culture. And that modern data culture will allow us to be able to bring in interfaces and allow us to be able to create interoperability of the information. The systems themselves, that's going to be a longer term issue. That's uh, certainly changing everybody's operational technologies is very complicated, but the data is really where the value is. And that's what we're starting with. And that's what we're bringing together first.
0: Right. Interesting. Okay. And, and what about, uh, and actually I'm glad you brought that up because that so much hadn't really occurred to me, but I was thinking more in terms of interoperability between states, uh, especially in, uh, you know, like maybe the Northeast where there's a bunch of small states and people are traveling begin soon. We'll begin traveling again, uh, you know, between state lines, maybe for work, um, is, is the issue of interoperability in terms of sharing data across state lines with each state kind of making its own app. Is that is that a concern at all?
1: Yeah, you know there there is a lot of concern there. So this is one of the things that uh, came up early in in the pandemic is that everyone was attempting to manage their own environment individually, and while there were many different avenues for people to be able to talk with each other, so. Um, The uh, CIO of of Utah, for example, had set up a a program for multiple states to be able to connect very quickly for CIOs. And now that's become a a standard Thursday meeting is for uh, all the CIOs across the the nation to get together. But the problem is, is that the tools that we're all using are exceedingly different. Uh, What we have been able to do from many states is many states that have developed a tool set. So in our case, uh, our contact tracing app, as well as another app that's on the citizen side called Care 19, uh, we've made those apps available for other states. So those apps have been now adoptable and adaptable from other states and multiple states have grabbed those. Uh, Many states are doing the same thing. So once they build out an application that they see value in, they're, they're not exactly open source, but basically making it open source for anybody else who needs it. Now, that's a great thing for all of us to be able to customize. The problem is, is that it really does slow down our response. So the reality is, is that uh, if you have to wait around for somebody else to figure it out and then you have to adapt and adopt their tool, sometimes there's a long window of time to be able to get that set up. So that is certainly a concern as we look across states. Now, there are initiatives going on right now between the CDC and uh, other federal agencies to be able to try and move data much, much faster, to be able to get that data consolidated. Uh, There are seven states working together right now. North Dakota is one of them that is working through a digital alignment process with the CDC so we can feed data to one source so that we can have a much more comprehensive uh, view of all of our citizen information around the covid pandemic. So we're, we're going the right way. But unfortunately, it, it takes quite a while to do this. And the virus is moving faster than we
0: are. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. OK, well, one of the reasons I asked you to be on this podcast is because I've always thought of you as a sort of innovative, uh, kind of agile, kind of open minded, kind of flexible sort of person and I'm interested to know whether you think there's anything in the way that that your IT department is run or anything that any preparatory work that has or groundwork that's been laid uh, that that's turned out to be useful uh, during the pandemic. So things that you did, you know, whether, you know, you obviously didn't know the pandemic was coming, but anything that you did, you know, within this frame of innovation that's turned out to be useful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would have loved if somebody would have told us a year ahead of time this was
0: coming. Yeah, that <laughs> so would have been would, nice, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, we would have had so much more done. Uh, um, but so some of the tactics we've taken to really convert ourselves into a much more modernized technology. And in we've we've been transforming our processes here for the last three years within North Dakota. And one of the very Fast things that I know has been problematic, but everybody talks about for many states is cloud. Very simply, use of the cloud was an absolute lifesaver for us. Um, We had comprehensively moved systems to the cloud that had they been on-prem, it just simply would not have been viable. Uh, We have also been making uh, major inroads in telework previously to COVID and standing up and building out systems for telework and standing up and really uh, helping with digital systems. So when we moved into uh, a telework environment, we had about a quarter million people across this state uh, between K-12, higher ed, the three branches of government, cities, counties, et cetera. We had about a quarter million people that we had to help move home in a matter of about four days. And we moved the entire executive branch in 48 hours. It was a big massive change and we would not have been able to do that had we had not really exploded our productivity technology. So our Office 365, Teams, it was available to every single person in our environment. So we were able to stand up systems for K-12, we were able to stand up systems For the executive branch, judicial branch, legislative branch and do it in a matter of hours instead of what it would have been previously of of weeks, months or years. Um, So some huge technology there in really enabling cloud, really bringing forth our productivity tools, um, thinking about our processes differently. So we had started already moving into a multi-state development platform as well as a multi-state cybersecurity platform. And just having those advantages really helped us so that uh, when we started moving into comprehensive telework, our teams are spread all over the country. I actually have uh, team members in nine different states around, around the country. And yet we really didn't miss a beat. Our teams were able to really get their work done still uh, across the board. It also really helped us from an agency standpoint where agencies who frankly, would have been sitting there with their hands up in the air saying, we can't do anything, have still been able to get the vast majority of their citizen facing work done. Uh, In fact, so much so that right now we're looking at 65, 70% of our workforce may stay teleworking for uh, in perpetuity because we simply, they don't need to come back. They can stay in a telework environment because we have so many services that now are able to be delivered digitally.
0: Yeah. Well, I've heard a mixture of responses in terms of that particular question. Some CIOs saying they don't really have any interest when this is over. They're going back to the office and it's going to be more or less business as usual. Uh, What is your thinking around that in terms of allowing people to continue doing that and the potential uh, benefits and downsides?
1: Yeah, I, think, I mean, on-prem certainly has its advantages. However, the reality is, is that we, we are going to have uh, 97% of our IT organization continue to telework for the foreseeable future. Um, we have lots of data over the last 15 years worth of data from, um, from the federal side of OMB, from the GSA, from other organizations that show some pretty substantial cost savings when it comes to telework. Uh, very sufficient um, productivity gains, so 15% productivity gains when you move your team into telework, an average of $7 million saved for every 500 staff that you move into telework. So there's some very good cost savings there. There's good productivity gains there. So our IT organization is, for the vast, vast majority, going to stay working this way. And that's, uh, that's what we see here for the foreseeable future. The interesting part is, is much of our customer base is doing the same thing. Uh, the Department of Human Services, so the human services side, as an example, the vast majority of them are going to continue teleworking. Our Department of Transportation, vast majority is going to stay teleworking. Uh, multiple other agencies. Of course, there's ones like the prison system, uh, correction system, that you know it, telework doesn't work for a guard, uh, so there's always positions where it doesn't work. However, most organizations are going into and staying in a telework state, uh, within North Dakota.
0: Right. All right. Uh, any parting thoughts on innovation and, you know, whether connected to COVID or not, uh, for your counterparts?
1: You know, uh, the reality is, is innovation is purely a reflection of a growth mindset, believing in the art of the possible believing that all barriers can be overcome. The reality is is most innovation is crushed simply by people saying, nah, that can't be done. Um, The reality is is if you take that line out and you say, hmm, how might we? How could we? What if we? You will innovate. Um, You will be awesome at innovation if you can simply change the mindset of your organization to ask the question of the possible instead of the wall or the, uh, the big hands up signal of saying, no, it's not possible.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well said. All right. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you. That concludes part one of this episode. Now here's Mike Hussey, CIO of Utah. All right. We're talking about innovation. So, uh, Mike, how does innovation pre COVID Uh, How did did you see innovation fitting into your overall IT framework?
2: Well, innovation is very important in the state of Utah um, as it relates to how we serve our citizens. Uh, First of all, we look at digital government and how innovation has driven digital government in the state. Uh, We've been very uh, uh, active in moving forward in our digital government space and moving services closer to the citizen, not in a building. And so uh, the inno- many innovations over the years have allowed us to move over 1,200 applications online in, the, in Utah. And so we're also seeing innovative things coming to market that uh, simplify the lives of our citizens. So it's truly been something we have been focused on in, in distilling out those innovative things coming into the market where we can apply them to making citizens' lives easier. So that's something we've been focused on over the I don't know, last 10, 15 years. And uh, it's it's been great to see the dividends that have paid off as a result. Uh, a statistic I sometimes throw out there is that Utah, with these 1,200 services that we moved online, um, has been allowed to move uh, about 40 million transactions a year online Uh, And with a a study done by the University of Utah uh, has also indicated that of those 40 million transactions or because of those 40 million transactions, we're saving uh, about 13 to 14 dollars per transaction because we don't have to have the citizens coming into a place of business and they're able to do those online. So lots of reasons to be innovative here in Utah, especially as it drives digital government and makes the workplace more efficient and and citizens lives more efficient
0: right it just occurred to me that maybe we should attempt uh briefly to define innovation i kind of think of it as just doing something different do you have a do you have a useful definition that will kind of inform the rest of our conversation
2: Uh, Yeah. When I, just to frame innovation, I, I think you're right. I think that you're doing something different than what you were doing before with the caveat that it's, um, it is more efficient. It's, it's probably, uh, what the citizens or your, your customers are demanding. And, uh, and you can see the trends in, in technology that are moving in a particular particular direction and, uh, and just moving with those trends
0: right yep that makes sense to me um so you'd mentioned that the dividends that you're seeing being paid now during the coronavirus pandemic given your history of a focus on innovation do you have any examples or can you cite any instances where you think maybe if you hadn't focused as heavily on one particular program area or another that you'd be really hurting right now?
2: Certainly. Uh, for instance, uh, our, our DMV, we've, uh, we were early adopters of allowing folks to renew uh, their registrations online. And uh, so the, the public at large is just accustomed to doing that. Uh, we're not having to try and, and, and shift how our citizens do, do that kind of uh, interaction with the state. Uh, and so over time, you know, as people are more used to going online to conduct those services, uh, it's, just, it's just the way you do things. Uh, however, there are some services that still require folks to come into the DMV to um, transfer title or, or there's a, a problem with the registration. And those kinds of things, yeah, you would have to come into the DMV. So with the coronavirus, uh, we were seeing that We shut down many of the DMVs. It was only uh, those that could accommodate a drive-up service, which meant we were only running three to four DMVs in the entire state. And so what was happening after the coronavirus, uh, many people that were were going to their usual DMV uh, could no longer do that. And people were lining up at 6 a.m., and you'd have these very long lines and uh, and. And people just sitting in their cars waiting for the DMV to open. And again, because we were early adopters, moving these services online, it's just and the citizens were just accustomed to doing things a particular way, doing them online. I think positioned us well for when the coronavirus hit, we were already in that place where we we had adopted adopted innovative things. Um, you can do it on your phone, you can do it on a computer. Uh, those kinds of things really paid a lot of dividends when this hit.
0: Right. All right. And uh, so before this, uh, you sent over a list of a bunch of different projects that you have or are either working on now or recently started. And um, these, these sound really interesting. So could you kind of give a, everyone a tour of, of what these different projects are?
2: Sure. Uh, absolutely. We're, we're, we're working on uh, many fronts. Uh, I think what everybody out there is dealing with is how to create a remote workforce And uh, that was an initiative that our lieutenant governor was driving uh, a year and a half prior. And so we were already positioning ourselves to uh, to create this remote workforce for many reasons. I I mean, less congestion on the roads, uh, better air quality, uh, being able to hire um, from uh, more distantly throughout the state, more rural parts of the state, uh, you could actually have employees just about anywhere and just be as effective. So there were a lot of reasons to do it, and uh, so we were, we were kind of well down that road to create a, a remote workforce. But um, but maybe just kind of going at a, a casual pace. Well, then uh, the coronavirus virus hits, and then you have to you're catapulted into doing this overnight. And uh, this is where. Um, our remote workforce, we had to, to be very creative with solutions so that you're still not jeopardizing the, um, the security on the machine while at the same time allowing your workforce to work remotely. And so uh, you know, changing our VPN solutions, uh, changing our, our call centers, um, those kinds of things that had to happen overnight, your firewalls, uh, all of those things, we, we had to be nosed down for, for a few weeks as we were enabling these folks, and, and still maintain uh, regulatory compliance, uh, really tr- created some challenges. But yeah, it, it I think we did a good job. We were just getting into that uh, when, we, so we'd figured out how to remote work. And, uh, you know, we, the coronavirus hits, and then we have, uh, uh, you know, we're trying to create a contact tracing center, or a call center even. And uh, we happened to have an earthquake right after that. And so compound the fact that our remote workforce is trying to re- work remotely, and then factor in damage uh, from an earthquake to some state facilities. Yeah, it really does change uh, what you're trying to do. So, so now I think the what people are calling the new normal is is going to be certainly a, a stronger remote workforce, um, and, and and actually it, it, it worked out well for us. We're, we're we're actually hiring people from across the state, uh, filling positions that. In in areas of the state which we hadn't in the past, and so it's it's really been refreshing to see that some of our recruiting challenges are are being solved by this. So there, if there's a silver lining in there somewhere, it's uh, it's our remote workforce.
0: Yep. The uh, so the the next thing I see on the list here is this uh, contact tracing app. Is that something that you've? What is your office's role been in in doing that? I know in different states, uh, sometimes you just heard led by the governor's office, or the, the focus comes from different places? What is What does that look like in so, Utah? Yeah,
2: we worked uh, with, uh, of course, obviously, with the, the governor's office, and uh, and the, we have a very strong tech community in the state of Utah, what we affectionately call the Silicon Slopes. And uh, it, there was a, a company that we worked together um, on developing this application uh, to to develop a contact tracing app. And uh, so they, they had some great ideas. They were already a mature company in social media and uh, worked with them to, to modify some of what they had done and to work well with this uh, contact tracing app. And uh, that's worked well. We, we rolled it out April 22nd. So it's been in the market for a long time. It was GPS-based, um, so we could, uh, you know, based on two phones being at the same GPS location, using the accelerometer in the phone, using the, some Bluetooth to really refine the GPS data coming out of the phone to say, hey, where are these two phones within, actually, they, we constitute a contact as being uh, anything from 2 to 15 feet for 15 minutes uh, is considered a contact. And so this app would, um, work, again, working with this, this company, working with folks in our office, working with the governor's office. Uh, getting this app out to uh, to understand it. how do we notify citizens if someone is uh, you know shows a positive to go back through and you know trying to do that from memory is, is sometimes difficult and that's what our call center does um, you know they'll go back and they say hey we'll start contact tracing the traditional methods of of contact tracing but memories aren't perfect and sometimes you don't even know the people that you might have been near. And so this provides a little more automated method to to do contact tracing, and uh, um, you know, Apple and Google have released some APIs now that uh, give some some more precise data, maybe with uh, the way they they do it with uh, just looking at distance using Bluetooth, um, and it's uh, very private and confidential. So we still have some challenges to overcome with adoption on this particular app, but it's uh, again, it's been great to have it out there just to release some angst
0: yeah the uh you mentioning adoption makes me think of the interoperability issue. I don't know how big of a concern that is, but it that was one of the first things that occurred to me when I heard that everyone was making their own app is you know that might be fine for the time being with people kind of staying where they are but when uh as as stay at home orders are lifted and people start traveling more um. How is that going to work with, you know, if someone from Utah is in another state, or you're gonna to have to download multiple apps? Will the Google Apple APIs help overcome that? What's how do you how do you think through that that yeah, issue?
2: No, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, there, you know, we we tried to get out early uh, for to take care of Utah, um, and there you know, we kind of have a large geographic state, but in other areas of the country where you you might have some smaller states uh, nestled uh, near one another and, you know, the, you know, crossing borders is something that's done every day. Uh, yeah, you're, you're going to have some challenges and, uh, the Google Apple API could do it, but there has to be some, some collaboration between uh, all of those apps being developed and, uh, I don't know that it's there yet. It was again. It was you know trying to just go out early on these kinds of things and and take care of what you could. And uh, now uh, some states have uh, adopted the same the same app. And so in the app you can say, hey, I'm in this state, and that data would continually actually is aggregated. And so you could say, hey, I had a contact in another state. If that state was was on this particular app, um, there, I think there's some work to be done on that front to share some between these applications, um, and I and I think that can be done and still maintain uh, citizen privacy. But I, that's that's something that needs to be worked on. I, you you probably highlighted a very um, real concern and, and real challenge for us right now.
0: Right. All right. There's a lot of good stuff here. Let's uh, let's go to the intelligence dashboard. Oh,
2: so yeah, another great company in Utah, part of our Silicon Slope group, Domo. Uh, we we rolled out a dashboard early to just track everything from how many beds in the ICU were available to um, how many what zip codes were were being challenged with coronavirus, and we created um, some very in depth and um, and very detailed dashboards, and we also created from that same data some very easy-to-read ones for for those trying to make some data-driven decisions in the state. For instance, the governor has a dashboard that he looks at that's one of these DOMO dashboards that is a bunch of gauges looking at, you know, how are we doing as a state in different categories, and it allows at a glance to know how we're doing. Uh, do we wait to go to our to change our risk level? So we have four risk levels in the state. Uh, we have red, orange, yellow, and green. Much of the state has gone to yellow and and we're even talking about uh, some of the state going to what they call a safe green um, while other areas of the of the state are still in orange. And it's based on the data that you know this dashboard, so the the governor and other others making these decisions can look quickly at um, the the dashboard and make these decisions at a moment's notice. And so, uh, again, uh, great company. They they threw a lot of resources at it. We've uh, partnered really well with Domo, and uh, it's just been a great. great journey to see how quickly we can stand up data and get it in front of these these decision makers
0: right and uh you mentioned the dmv earlier uh when did you add texting for for uh queuing
2: yeah so that was uh that was kind of a, a recent ad and so uh you know we had uh, uh, we used some scheduling software so that you could schedule your time at the dmv which would limit the number of folks in the lobby. Uh, But then when you go to um, zero waiting in the lobby because of coronavirus, um, you have to do something else. And uh, so we added SMS texting when it's your turn at a particular counter uh, that you can wait in your car, you can wait um, just outside, and you'll receive an SMS text um, when it's your turn to walk in uh, go right up to the counter, um, conduct your business, and then walk out. So uh, it, again, you know, everybody talks about social distancing, and it might be a, ta- a challenge if you were in the DMV, but you'll get reminders, uh, you know, before you go up, hey, your your appointment is in an hour. Uh, if you've forgotten about it, you know, you'll get these reminders. But then when it's your exact moment to walk in and walk right up to the counter, you'll get a, another SMS text and uh, it's really um, really helped. I think uh, alleviate some of those concerns about people being in a in a large crowd and and uh, are they going to be safe? And yet they still have to conduct these these transactions at the DMV. So so that SMS texting uh, has really worked well. It tied in perfectly with our our system that we currently had. It, it, it it's been phenomenal. And and actually I I was uh, talking to one of our uh, uh, workers at, at DMV at the DMV, and somebody didn't have a, a current cell phone, and she was helping the individual stand up the alerts, and uh, and uh, so she was getting the text messages on behalf of that individual, and just walking out and and waving the person in to to get it. So they leave a few empty slots every day, but um, you know, primarily you try and schedule your time. But if you're just a you know walk in they do have a way to accommodate it now with this SMS texting. So it's been a, a great solution so that people are are a little more comfortable. They don't have to you know, worry too much about being in a lobby um, right next to one another. So we've, we've actually removed all of the chairs out of all of the lobbies of, at the DMVs. There are, there are no chairs to wait inside. And so um, this has been a great solution to allow us to, to get there.
0: Right. Yeah, that's great. Um- And chatbots. I remember you brought up chatbots at NASIO some years ago before, well, I guess people were starting to talk about them, but I would uh, venture to say you are something of an early adopter, at least an early uh, observer of the technology's (laughs) arrival. What have have you been doing there?
2: So, yeah, great. Uh, uh, The chatbots have have just been phenomenal, And, and many states have... Have jumped in early on these, uh, you know. Big shout shout out to like Mississippi and others that that jumped in and and named uh, their chat bot something uh, like I think Mississippi's is called Missy, and uh, so they they have great great value, especially now where you're overwhelmed for people trying to get information, and uh, so we we stood up a, a chat bot on our main site, um, which was we called Porter. Um, Porter was, uh, significant for n- a number of reasons, but we were the, um, connection of the East and West of the railroads. They came together in Utah at a place called Promontory, Promontory Point, And we recently had, um, a reenactment of the driving of the Golden Spike, which connected the East and the West. Um, and of course a Porter helping people get you know, on and off the train. You know, there's some, some other, um, nice uh, sentiments coming out of the name Porter. But Porter will go and get your data for you and bring it back. And uh, so if you if you uh, text Porter, uh, you will get some information about uh, unemployment insurance, like what's the best way to do that. Or if you feel like you have the coronavirus, you get directed to the appropriate service there. Um, there's uh, many times it's just a matter of getting people to the right site uh, getting or to the right location so that they can put their information in. And so uh, Porter has been great. And we also um, as part of this, once you land on the coronavirus site uh, if you uh, still have questions uh, we have a chat location there and Porter actually turns into a live person behind it. And so if you're still, you know, you're having troubles getting the data you need, or maybe it's in a wrong language, you know, whatever the case is, uh, you, you, the, you know, Porter turns into a live. So we have AI built behind most of it, but then once you hit to this, this location and, and we're using again, another Utah company called Podium to help us with that. And so it's similar chat mechanism with a live person behind it. So. Uh, we've seen Porter field uh, just a, a ton of questions um, on on how to how to apply for unemployment insurance, um, to how to get information about uh, the coronavirus. We even had Porter um, try and respond somebody. Uh, Put in some of their marital challenges and uh porter tried to respond on that so porter's fielding all sorts of interesting questions out there but it's it's really been a, a huge value proposition for the state of utah as it's directing traffic to get people to the data they need as quickly as possible
0: let's see next on this list we have adobe sign for telework sure
2: and and that's uh that's been great too uh we we've um, trying to do things in a remote environment uh, such as what we're in today. uh, It's difficult if you need signatures on things or approvals and those things just can't stop. And uh, we were, that's another thing that we were doing early on. It was this adoption of uh, digital signatures and uh, Adobe was a great solution for that. And so we were, uh, we're well down that road when um, we, Uh, said, Hey, this is, we're going to expand our use. Uh, We kind of admired some of the great work they did in Hawaii. Um, Admired it so much. We hired their person that was doing a lot of the work out there and they came to Utah. I don't know how we ever enticed them, but um, they've been just doing some phenomenal work uh, about moving a lot of these, the paper shuffling and paper routing, uh, just looking for wet signatures to now getting a digital signature Which can be done in moments, rather than waiting for the you know the the state mail to work or however you're trying to shuffle documents needing approvals, and uh, and even interacting with the the uh, citizens where you're not just internal facing documents but external facing where you might need um, you know might be doing some uh, engineering documents or uh, things of that nature, and so it really has expedited the the work even though you're in this um, remote work situation, you can st- continue to be as efficient as you were before, and maybe even more, more so with the routing of these documents. Uh, I, I'm seeing a number of documents I approve every day, um, and, and it's just the click of a mouse, and it's been real easy to keep up on the workload and, uh, and, and still maintain the, the great work that's going on in the state.
0: There's a Department of Transportation app that you had some trouble um, with uh, geofencing. Yeah. Um What did What was that app for?
2: So uh, we had a um, uh, we built a geofence, if you will, around Utah to um, understand if people were coming into the state um, to get medical care, if they were uh, sick, uh, if you know, you know, what, is there something we can direct you to? Um, so it really was. Uh, Set up to to help understand why people are coming in if if they're trying to get uh, healthcare et cetera. Uh, it it didn't work real well, and some of that was due to the um, the precision of the cell phone. You know, I've I've been hiking in in southern Utah where I'll get a, an alert that. They will geofence off an area if if there's a thunderstorm and you're hiking in a canyon that might be um, prone to flash flooding. you get So the the you get the alerts based on that location. Well, we did that with the entire state to, to push out this notification when you came in. And it allowed people to fill out a quick survey, uh, you know, are you coming in for medical care or whatever. And um, we had some cities that were close to the border that repeatedly were getting the um, the notification popping up on their phone. We tried to say, look, if you're in this zone for five minutes and it feels like you're coming into the state, then we would send the notification. We tried to build some intelligence around it. Uh, it, it, it wasn't as precise with the location data coming from the phone. And, uh, that's why I think we finally, um, just tabled it. But, um, the, the thought being though, that we can get our arms around, um, some of the, the virus challenges uh, early on. But again, you know, it's just, you know, we call it the fog of war. You know, you're, you're trying to, to respond to all of these challenges that you're dealing with. And this seemed like a good idea at the time uh, to get in front of uh, some of the, the challenges of people coming into the state that might be coming in for, like I said, healthcare, or coming in to visit someone that, that is, um, is, uh, is infected and does that mean that we might have an infection somewhere or or they know that they've been in contact with somebody and so it's it's more kind of to your point earlier about contact tracing across state borders this was a, a small attempt to get in front of that a little bit and that fog of war you're just uh trying to fight all the battles as quickly as you could and this was one of them that we we thought we could get in front of but again there was just not enough precision there and um and uh just didn't work so we've 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 tabled it for for now i don't know if we'll resurrect it but uh but other things that might come into that you know you might think about people coming back into the workplace and standing up a geofence around their workplace and so if if somebody is in that geofence um and they know that you know they they can feel confident because they're sharing their data with others within that geofence possibly. Uh, you know. However, an employer might want to do that. Um, it does allow for some opportunities, but um, this one didn't quite get there.
0: I did want to ask you one more question about uh, just in terms of a lesson learned or something that you've found useful or some realization that you think maybe your counterparts might appreciate. Anything come to mind?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't hurt to dip your toe in the water early on. Um, I, I think sometimes there's some apprehension uh, that you have to figure out how to boil the ocean on some solution. And I think you can dip your toe in the, wa- in the water early on, uh, get some exposure, um, and then if, it, if it's right, just go all in. And uh, I think that's what we've done on many of these. Um, we, we dipped our toe in the water on the geofence. It didn't work. We abandoned it. But many of the others have just been just tremendous, and so I, I just say, uh, you know, f- certainly figure out all of the, the the concerns that you have, and then uh, if, you know, figure out how to how to uh, uh, just run when you when you, you when you want to crawl. So <laughs> it's a it's a good solution out there.
0: That's great. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, really appreciate having you on the podcast, and uh, we'll we'll definitely be keeping an eye on. What's next for Utah?
2: And thank you, Colin. Appreciate you.
0: All right. That's it for this episode. For more coverage of state and local government IT news, go to statescoop.com.